Right, hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Uh, hosting as always, my name's Dan, and I'm joined this evening by Cam. Good evening. And Paul, you're back after, uh, we'll call it international duty last week. Yeah, I missed the uh, the special podcast with with Tom in the week last week, um, but I listened to it, it was excellent, excellent work, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, again, big thanks to Tom, that was a really interesting um interview i thought the 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 details of barry davis particularly amused me and um harking back to the the nightmare days of cfax um and teletext when things in the the late 90s uh, weren't always great for a, a liverpool fan if we um if we start there then i don't think there's much of a a better place that we can start with the the really sad news um that's brought on this week we seem to to be doing this a lot at the moment, talking about people in the past terms. Unfortunately, um, Gerard Houllier passed away yesterday, age seventy-three. Um, you, you two will kind of remember in, in our in our uni days. Um, we, we, I used to get teased quite a bit because I, I stuck by Houllier all the way until the end of his time at Liverpool, and when the end came, it was not nice. It was kind of quite an abrupt and quite an embarrassing departure for him really his, his final press conference is not something that um, he will want to look back on very fondly and I, I know it's not something that any of us do but I've found as time has gone on like, uh, it's been a good healer and I've managed to just solely remember um, 2001 which was the most remarkable football season still, still to this day uh, I know we've won the league, we've won the Champions League twice since then, but nothing has compared to that season where there was just high-intensity game every three days. It was just absolutely crazy, particularly in March, April and May when, um, as you always say, Paul trophies are won and lost. Um, and I, it's only when I've kind of like just assessed things yesterday and, and had to think about things when I realised just how influential Gerard Houllier's time at Liverpool still is um, when he took over the club, uh, Melwood was still effectively, in his, in, in his own words, a barracks. Um, we still had the likes of, of Paul Ince and Neil Ruddock bumming around the squad. Um, and in fact, I seem to remember a story in his first session as Liverpool manager. Paul Ince turned up on a mobile phone and that mobile phone was drowned in a bucket. Um which you wouldn't have happened now, but uh, I can't help but find that hilarious nonetheless. And this kind of disciplinarian came in and, and changed the way that the club operated. Liverpool were still stuck in the kind of boot room mentality at the time. Um, you know, like Roy Evans was kind of not moved aside, but he might as well have been because we all knew what was coming. He was Liverpool's first foreign manager. Um, he changed the way that the club looked at nutrition in rather in the same way that Arsene Wenger did Paul uh, at Arsenal and, and in English football I, I would argue that uh, both Houllier and Roy Evans uh, sorry not Roy Evans that would be a farcical thing to say as much as I like him um, both um, Arsene Wenger and Gerard Houllier are very influential on English football to this day the, the kind of nutrition and the values that they instilled with regards to not putting diesel in a Ferrari engine have kind of still running through the game, and I've been talking a while. So, what 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 do you what do you two think of Gerard Houllier? 
Yeah, I think I was going to sort of start where, where you ended really, Dan, in that I think he was really in that first wave of foreign managers that got big jobs in English football. If you think, you know, obviously Wenger had, had kind of already broken the mould a little bit by then. And I think Chelsea were, were, were certainly in the process, weren't they, with, with Ruud Hullet and then, and then Gianluca Vialli. But they were a sort of different style of appointment because they were both players at Chelsea who then stepped up to become the manager. I think um, Wenger and, and then Houllier were the first time that sort of big, you know, two of England's big traditional powerhouse clubs had looked outside of English football or outside of British football, certainly, um, to appoint a manager. And, and they definitely brought with them a different way of thinking about the game and a different approach to um, to football. I think uh, there's a lot to be said for the fact that 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 kind of late nineties and early noughties period was really important in terms of sort of setting the table for a new cadre of, of big clubs, if you like. And, and Houllier certainly did enough work to take Liverpool from the relative doldrums that they'd been in, in the, in the mid nineties into a position where they were in that, you know, on the fringes and, and competing with those other top clubs at, at that sort of turn of the century time. Um, uh, and, and provided a platform on which, you know, Rafa Benitez uh, for, for a period. And then obviously, uh, after another sort, sort of dip in the in the early part of this decade, um, Jurgen Klopp have kind of come in and, and, and rode on the back off to a certain extent. And I think that there is a lot of that longer term influence that, that Houllier, um can be remembered for. I think the other thing, Dan, is people shouldn't forget that whilst it's an extremely sad day when when you hear the news about about Jared Houllier dying that he he could have died 20 years ago you know when he when he had a heart attack at the side of a football pitch or or in the dressing room as it was before the before the game you know he was not a million miles away from from losing his life while the manager of Liverpool and I think um everybody is grateful that that he at least managed to uh, recover to get back into football management. He had some success after he left Liverpool with with Lyon in France, and then obviously a less successful stint back in the Premier League with Aston Villa. And then he's managed to 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 have at least a few years to to enjoy his retirement. Although I'm I'm, I'm conscious he's not been well for for a little while now. So um, yeah, extremely sad news about his passing. But but equally, you know. Let's be grateful for the the additional twenty years of life he had, and that the the excellent efforts that were made when he when he had the the heart issue to to sort of bring him back to full health at that point and and allow him to resume his career as a football manager because um, it would have been even even sadder had it had it ended at that point when when as you say, Danny, his Liverpool tenure then still looked like he might be the man who was celebrating breaking the title drought and and at least um, he got the opportunity to see his job through at Liverpool and it didn't quite finish the way they've liked it to. But but that's certainly a better outcome than what the alternative was. Um, the the other thing, of course, that he will always be remembered for in France is um, being the man who basically put an end to the uh, international careers of, of David Ginola and Eric Cantona. So um, that there are other reflections there that that people will have of it in the world game. But um, a very respected guy. I think most people who met him considered him to have been a real gentleman. And um, yeah, great shame for. Him and his family, and and um, you know, our thoughts are obviously with his family. Yeah, I think you know both both spoken br- brilliantly on it. Really, there's not not too much to add. I think the the only point I wanted to make is, 
Um, you know, and we've seen this because, as Dan has said, unfortunately, it's a topic we've come on to all, all too much in the last couple of months on this podcast, where sadly people in football have, have passed away. But you, you do get a sense of what a person's character was like sometimes when they pass away with the comments that people make, um, because it's a strange quirk of human nature that people wait for you to pop your clogs before they start saying nice things about you but mm. um one of the one of the things I've, I've one of the things that really struck me yesterday uh when the news broke about gerard Houllier is you know how quick so many of that young generation of of of, of Eng- particularly the english players um who sort of came through under Houllier, you know at, at Anfield at liverpool um in that period that he was there um you know all the sort of big names like you know Jamie Carragher, Stephen Gerrard, Michael Owen, Robbie Fowler, Danny Murphy were all, you know, straight away expressing their feelings um, of, of grief at the news that he passed away. And, you know, it really sounded like he did act as a father figure to those players, you know, and not not just as a sort of football coach, but a sort of off the pitch as well as they were sort of becoming young men. Um, and I think the fact that they sort of still remember that and owe him that gratitude you know, decades on, I think says a lot about what he what he was like as a as a person. Um, and so it is obviously. I think that's why it's it's been you know really felt like a a big loss at Liverpool because even if the way you know unfortunately football clubs rarely get uh, managers leaving right, it often gets messy and ugly. Um, and Julio's was perhaps no exception. But as you say, time's a great healer and it allows you to kind of adjust a bit more and actually get a better perspective sometimes. And I think, you know, when people look back now, they realise actually that they do owe him a, a gratitude for, for what he achieved there. Um, even if perhaps at the at the very end of him leaving, perhaps thing, you know, managers rarely go out on a high note. We all know that. Um, but I think on reflection now, I think people can see the job he did um, on and off the pitch with with those players and the things that he achieved as well. So it is, it is, it is a sad loss for you know the, the sort of Liverpool family and of course his immediate family as well. And uh, you know we hope he rests in peace. Dan, Dan, just to just to ask a question because I, Com mentioned something there about you know the players that came through on on his watch and the sort of the urban urban tale and and you will know more about this than others is that um, Gerard. Houllier was the man who really pushed for Steven Gerrard to be brought through into the first team squad at, at Liverpool and that there was some resistance within the setup at the time about whether Gerrard was really, you know, good enough to make it with the first team and and you know it, it was the manager himself sort of intervening and saying no he I like him he comes with me uh, that sort of allowed Gerrard to make that breakthrough is that one of those football urban myths that hasn't really got its roots in truth or or what what can you tell us about how that happened my understanding is that is correct um Julio was like this this is my guy and I I'm going to pick him and you are going to facilitate you know like you, you we are going to get him through the system yeah. um from from what I understand I mean and there's, there's stuff about this in the athletic if you'd like to give it a read uh, when you when you get a bit of time um that basically there were former captains and former I'll just say Manchester United players uh, who were not seen as good influences on the young players and Julier's kind of first big job was to, to, to get rid of of the likes of of Ruddock and Gibronis like that, you know, play, who who y- you could y- you could clean up Neil Ruddock's diet all you wanted, he'd still not be very good at football. <laughs> so you know, Julier's kind of first, first job was. I mean, he spent a lot of money. Now you look back and think, well, he didn't spend a lot of money, but you know, like we spent 
about like 35, 40 million in that first summer to to bring in uh, Hippier, Honcho, um, Vesterveld, what a worth of money that was. Um, you know, it, it, like it, it, it transformed everything. But he, he, the, the youth set up, I mean, like we brought through David Thompson at the kind of same time. Now he wasn't yeah. as good as Stephen Gerrard, and with all the will in the world, never would be, and wouldn't pretend that he is. But you know, like we we were still trying to bring players through um, at, at that time. So, so the story, as I as I read it, and I haven't read the the Athletic article, Dan, but the the story as I read it was the two kids that the sort of Liverpool academy system was really trying to push on Julie were were Thompson and and was it Richie Partridge? He was a, a young Irish kid. Richie Partridge wide. W- w- he was a he was a wide player. He, he kind of he was probably probably a year before that would have been his kind of yeah and. And, and the story, as I heard it, was they were the players they were trying to really push on Julia, and he was a bit resistant. And so they got him down to go and watch, you know, whether it was a reserve team game or whatever. And, and his sort of takeaway from the game was, Stephen Gerrard's coming with me. He's not training with you lot anymore. And, um, and you know, if if nothing else, and obviously Gerrard Julia had a massive impact on Liverpool in lots of other ways and won trophies and, you know, put the club back into that sort of mix at the top of the table... But even if he'd done none of that, simply being the man who said, no, Steven Gerrard needs to be the future of this football club is almost enough on its own, isn't it, to to assure him a place in the sort of pantheon of, of, of Liverpool Football Club and the history of the club when it when it's written. Well, it's interesting that you should mention that because a lot of Liverpool's games at that time, you know, like 97, 98, 99 time, were, were played at Nolte Road, which used to be the, the home of my beloved... Um, and current Super League champion St. Helens. Um, so I, I used to see a lot of the reserves because I couldn't always get tickets to go to Anfield at the time. They're you know, like 13, 14 years, old, years of age. But I could go and see the reserves whenever I wanted. And I, I used to, to see the reserves a fair bit. So I, I knew that David Thompson was a, a really talented player, but even at that age he had issues with diving into tackles, let's just say that. And... That's not something that he ever recovered from particularly. His, his discipline was always something that let him down. Uh, but I, I could tell straight away that Steven Gerrard was... Like I've been saying to you, for, for, to, you to, to you, Paul, for a while, that Curtis Jones is good enough and shouldn't be in the reserve team. He should be in the first team. I was saying that about Steven Gerrard in 1990. I mean, me, me dad was pointing it out to me, you know, all the, the things he did. All, mm. all the things that, that Gerrard did that other players couldn't. So I, I kind of had that that special early look at Steven Gerrard and yeah, Julier was was there a, a lot. I mean, this something they wanted to pick up on because um, it was detrimental to his health. Gerrard Julier was a workaholic by his mm. his own admission. I mean, I read a very interesting and funny article by Phil McNulty yesterday on the BBC where um, they asked him to kind of do some predictions for Euro two thousand. And Gerard kind of did this entire dossier on every team, and hardly any of it made it in. In but like he didn't do anything by halves. He did yeah. everything by everything, and that was one of the things that a lot of people liked about him the most. Um, I, I was watching, and, and I was watching Jamie Redknapp and, and Chris Kirkland being quite upset on Sky Sports News yesterday, and that, that kind of set me off. Where you know, like he, they told stories about things he'd done for them, and Vinnie O'Connor, um, who who actually was briefly banned 
from from Melwood, which I'll get on to in a minute, um, was saying how for one of his first press conferences he was running late and he arrived at Melwood after all the other journalists had left and the conference had finished. So, um, as as you'll know, Paul, journalist's worst nightmare, no material, no quotes, no nothing. Yeah. And Julier spotted him outside looking quite downbeat and glum and he explained the situation and Julier said, come with me and we'll do something and Julier did a one-on-one press conference for him, um, which was something that Vinny O'Connor's never forgotten. That must have been 22, 23 years ago. No, it would be 22 years ago, possibly. I think mm. that's kind of the, the measure of the man. Um, I've already mentioned his, his heart condition, and, and I think you, you kind of have to look at, at Gerard Houllier's Liverpool manager before and after that, because before that we were a serious football team. Yeah, we, we, we I'm, I'm sure you'll be the first to point out we had a, a lot of luck in, in that cup treble. Um, maybe not the Alavés yeah, game. In, in that cup final, my goodness me. Yeah, that that was daylight yeah, like robbery if, against Arsenal. If there was VAR, Liverpool would have ended up with about seven players. <laughs> yeah, I, I know when we always talk about things that still annoy you in football, I know that game comes up for you, Paul, along with Mr Bennett inventing a penalty in the Battle of Old Trafford 2004. Or was it 2003? Yeah, yeah, late 2003, yeah, September yeah. maybe. Yeah, I, I remember that well. I remember watching that game with you and your blood pressure visibly soaring. Um, yeah, so it, it's you, you, you know, like we, we were a serious football team. We were organised, we were disciplined, and yet not always pretty to watch. And particularly in the later part of his tenure, it was a, a bit too much. Let's get it up to Emil Heskey to get it to Michael Owen as quickly as we can. Um, you know, that, 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 I'm just trying to. Think of the best way to word this. He he regressed as a manager, and I think it's because and by his own admission, he came back too soon. He came back from a, a twelve-month layoff in four months, and yeah. it is you know he as someone who worked as hard as he did, it was very detrimental to his health, and and yeah, that's that's what caused. Um, caused his deterioration as a manager, and not only as a manager as a person, he became quite grumpy and. Um, Paranoid, and uh, I don't like talking about this, but it, it's important to mention it because, as as I said, time has been a great healer. It would be easy for me to sit and remember the the you know, the, the the less kind of palatable times towards the end of his career when he was banning journalists for not agreeing with him. So, so, like a, a, a journalist who quite a few of my friends know was was directly banned by him from Melwood um, because he he was not positive, and by the end of his time at Liverpool. Uh, like, the, the appraisal was was very difficult to be positive, and and you you two will remember I I clung on to the bitter end, saying let's just get to summer and see what happens. I want, really wanted him to turn it around, but he started to make some strange tactical decisions. I mean, I, I'm sure you'll both remember Liverpool level on aggregate, winning on away goals in Leverkusen, and him taking off um, Didier Man, who you can always depend on to do a great job to shield him a defence and bringing on Vladimir Smyson when we didn't need a goal. Um... Yeah, I, I thought what happened to, to him at the end of his, his Liverpool tenure, Dan, was there'd been a lot of criticism about Julier being a bit dour and a bit negative and his team's being functional rather than than exciting. And I think certainly that last 12 months, it was almost as though he was saying, you want me to be exciting? Right, I'll show you what exciting looks like. And I think they were a less good team as a result of it. Yeah, we we were heavily dependent on Steven Gerrard and Michael Owen's partnership at the time as well. Uh, I mean that that would prove to be Michael Owen's last season. The fool went to Real Madrid and, and missed out on a European Cup. But um, it it was 
what 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 you're saying is correct. It was kind of um, Liverpool were not known for free flow and attacking football, and and you kind of right, he kind of rolled up his sleeves and said, right, well, we'll we'll soon see about that. And yeah, it, it just didn't work because we didn't have the players for it because we were no. a tactical, functional team, and yeah, you know yeah, what, yeah. It, it worked for a long time. The, the the biggest regret, and I'm sure, and I'm sure Gerard re- regretted it himself for, for the longest time, was he should have signed Nicholas and Elka and not that Eladji Juve Gibroni. And if he does that, then Liverpool have a platform to go on and and maybe break that that lead duck, as you say. But um, it, it wasn't quite to be for him and. You know, I, I, I only, re- I've only realized. I mean, it's always been nice to see him. You know, and he's, he's been on TV a few times, and he's been known to visit the ground, and he's had his name chanted a few times. So that was that was always been nice to see him. It, it, in the way that I still, kind of things with with Rafa Benitez's departure rankle with me. I, I, I realized yesterday just at how how much I only think of. Um, Dortmund 2001 and the, the cup treble in 2001 that, that's all I think of when I think of Gerard Hulia that beaming smile um, I don't think too much about um, Salif Diaw um, yeah. <laughs> you know that, that's the, the, the kind of I thing. think I've got advice for everybody <laughs> for everyone associated <laughs> with, with football yeah um, one, one, one thing I just wanted to, to, to say Khan is that um, I'm sure you were sick of the sight of Liverpool and Danny Murphy when Julio was manager because he was very good. He's doing something now that Liverpool's best manager certainly um, since since Kenny's first spell still can't buy a winner. Old Trafford. Yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's a funny one because uh, yeah, of course when when someone sort of is associated with your your rivals, obviously you do sometimes have a a skewed view of him. And I think, uh, you know, he, uh, thinking back to, to back then, it was, you know, kind of pleased that perhaps Liverpool didn't always play, um, you know, maybe the most attractive football, as, as, as you've said, um, in contrast to obviously United, who were a very good side then and were, you know, did play um, entertaining attacking football. So uh, it, it, it was perhaps a, a point of uh, maybe not, not ridicule might be a bit strong, but, you know, it was a point of amusement, if you like, um, but obviously, as you as you get a bit older and a bit wiser, and, and you obviously you know learn more about what he actually was doing at the club, you sort of realise that actually you know playing style is sort of one part of overall management, you know, and there are other factors to how you sort of behave and carry yourself as well. And you know, even if you didn't necessarily agree with his playing style or, or favourite or whatever, you know, a manager can bring so much more than that to to a club as well. Which I think you know, as you've talked about, you know, in many examples there, Dan. Um, you know, Gerard Julio undoubtedly did that. Uh, did that for Liverpool. Yeah, I've uh, I've, I've talked a lot here, um, but I, I was as as you both know, you, you know, we, we both sat around tables in pubs when when we was at uni when you were visiting Paul Khan and and even though it was the complete not thing to do, I, I was batting for Gerard Julia. I went and I played every forward defensive possible for Gerard Julia. <laughs> and I would do the same again because Gerard Hulier was a gentleman. He was a very intelligent man. He knew his football. You don't get to be the technical director of a World Cup winning team if you don't know your football. And yeah, I'm absolutely um, devastated that he's gone. But what a what a career he had. Um, and yeah, uh, my, my thoughts are with his family and 
with people at the clubs where he, he served so well. It was the, the the Red Bull Salzburg manager was particularly cut up yesterday. And yeah, I'm just going on now. So uh, thank you, Gerard. Thank you for everything you did for the club because you did a lot more than some people will appreciate. Paul, last week we had a discussion about uh, is Mikel Arteta under pressure? And you was like, yes, but no. Is it now a case of yes and yes? Certainly losing 1-0 at home to Burnley. And, in, and and I know you didn't watch it because you'd have been watching the Buffalo Bills because it's that kickoff time slot again. And I'm sure Arsenal are sick of the sight of that kickoff time because I know you certainly are. Um, very uninspiring in, in a defeat at home to Burnley. Silly disciplinary problems again. Uh, pretty difficult games to come up. Southampton through the week. Uh, Goodison Park is never an easy place to go. Has that pressure kind of been ramped up now? Are you, are you kind of thinking that this is so actually th- a bigger problem. I think I said last week, Dan, come back to me if you lose at home to Burnley, which obviously they then went on to do. Um, and it was that ridiculous time slot. And I was kind of, the Bills didn't play till later on Sunday. So I was I was able to kind of keep one eye on Arsenal and one eye on the NFL, although I didn't, you know, I, I was very much concentrating on the, on the latter. Um, it didn't look particularly inspiring even before the sending off. I think... My my take on the game as I had seen it was the first half was utterly dire. Um, they'd actually played well for the first 10-15 minutes of the second half before the sending off um, and maybe looked like they were going to find a way of, of breaking Burnley down and then obviously the sending off happened and, and it becomes a bit of a microcosm of some of the issues. That was the sixth red card um, under Arteta uh, in less than a year. I think no other Premier League team has had more than three in that time period. Um, now, that's the second one in a matter of weeks where it's for a player reacting in a way that just can't happen. Uh, with the Pepe incident at Leeds and then obviously Xhaka um, on Sunday, it's a definite red card. He doesn't have any grounds for complaint. Um, I think part of that is the players are really frustrated that they can't seem to find their form. They can't seem to find... Um, you know, a way of, of breaking teams down, of being creative. Uh, so there's definitely some fr- frustration in there, but it but it does ultimately reflect on the manager when you're continually having players sent off for for those sorts of things. This is not players being sent off for overly aggressive challenges. This is players being sent off for things off the ball, reactions that they don't need to make, incidents that are, you know, when the game has stopped. And I just, I think that's unforgivable. Um, and Xhaka certainly has uh, history with, with unforgivable moments. Um, in terms of where it leaves Arteta, it leaves him under significant pressure. I think uh, he has to get a result pretty quickly um, because I think it's something like one win in, in nine or something in the league. It's it's not a great run at all. Um, and he needs to turn that around. Now, I still think there are not the same level of fundamental problems within the team that there were 12 months ago when Arsenal got rid of Emery. And I think that will buy him a little bit more patience with the hierarchy. But equally, um, you know, it is a results business and he has to start getting football results. You can't you can't be Arsenal and, and be, you know, halfway through the season. And obviously we're not at this stage, but we're what? five or six games away from the halfway point. You can't be five or six games away from the halfway point and get there and, and still be 15th in the table. That that won't fly. So um, I think he is under pressure. 
Uh, I think it's a big game in the week against Southampton. I think it's a game Arsenal are more than capable of winning, but they'll have to play better than they've been playing. Um, equally, Everton at the weekend, that's not a game that Arsenal should have any fear about, but they need to produce better performances and, and certainly they need to be more ruthless at the top end of the pitch. Um, I, there's a question that some Arsenal fans have, have wondered whether the players are still playing for him. Um, and there's been lots of speculation about the extent to which the Ozil situation has, has upset the apple cart a bit. Um, I mean, maybe that's true, but I, I kind of think if there are, if the, if the, board perceives the problem at Arsenal being the players and not playing for a second manager within 12 months, then I think the board needs to start to think about whether there might be a more fundamental problem with the personalities of the football club. Um, and that's a, a, an issue that they'll have to resolve, whoever the manager is. Uh, and, and finally, you know, the thing that we talked about when right at the start of the season, when, when Ole was maybe under a bit of pressure at Manchester United, is the thing that helps keep Mikel Arteta in a job uh, to an extent, is who is the alternative? You know, where where does the club go if it's not Mikel Arteta? Um, now, obviously, when we had that conversation in the context of Manchester United, we talked about potentially Pochettino, and I think there's obviously reasons why he wouldn't be um, an option at Arsenal. Equally, when we talked about Manchester United, there's a reason why Brendan Rodgers wouldn't be an option at Manchester United, and I'm led to believe that... Um, he would uh, be very happy to be considered for the Arsenal job. Twelve months ago, he was a little um, reluctant to leave Leicester. I think they were second or third, weren't they, at the time in the, in the league. But I, I am led to believe if the call came this time that Brendan Rodgers would be interested. Um, now, I'm not the biggest Brendan Rodgers fan in the world, so that wouldn't particularly excite me. But I, I do think that question about who's the alternative, where does the club go if it's not Mikel Arteta, uh, it is something that, that helps kind of for now to, to keep the wolf at bay a little bit. But, but again, I repeat what I've said, he needs to win football matches and he needs to win... Um, you know, three or four football matches quite quickly, I would think, between now and kind of the end of that Christmas period. He needs to put, put 10 points on the board as a, as a sort of minimum. Um, if he can do that, then then things will look different. But um, but he is under some pressure to do that. He's also under some pressure to play the kids because they went six from six in the Europa League. Now, you all know what I thought about Europa League group, but they went six from six in the Europa League. At least those players have got some recent experience of winning games and they might run around a bit more. <laughs> just, to, just to ask a quick question there, sorry, Paul. Who, who is the kind of like structure around Arteta? It's not some kind of Derek Fazakali kind of figure in the background nodding his head and smiling. I agree with you, Mikel, is it? So it's interesting that his his um, his assistants are the the Dutch guy who also works with the Welsh national team, whose name escapes me, um, and Steve Round. Now Steve Round's a, a really well respected football coach. Obviously, he was on David Moyes' staff at Manchester United, but has, has worked with England before as well. Um, I think he has good people around him. He, he was he was at Everton when when Arteta was there. Uh, I, I think. I, I think there might be a little bit of a question about about whether uh, Mick's the best at listening to the people around him um, or whether he's a little bit kind of... I think he's very single-minded on what he wants to do. He always was as a player. Um, so I, I do wonder a little bit there whether whether that's part of it. But ultimately, I, I, I just think it, the 
problem is the balance in the team in finding that right balance between defence and attack. And he was maybe guilty of sort of tilting it too far one way. And with the exception of the Villa game, um, and we all know Danny can have a, a bit of a nightmare against Aston Villa. Um, but with, with the exception of the Villa game, generally Arsenal have defended all right this season. Uh, the problem's been at the other end. They haven't scored enough goals. That's why we're where we are in the league. Um, we just, uh, is it, you know, I think it's our worst goal output for 60 years or something at this stage of the season. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it, it is really strange how, you know, you do have some some good attacking players. And, you know, Aubameyang in particular has been so consistent for you since he joined. It's It's just, you know, it does as a sort of outsider looking in and, you know, I don't see Arsenal every week, but... It does seem strange that uh, you know he just hasn't you know got anywhere near the tally that he's had in in comparable seasons. Um, and with bringing in you know people like like William, who are quite creative and usually you know good for sort of setting up goals as as well as getting some himself. Um, you know he was good opening day and then hasn't really been seen since. It, it just does seem strange. <laughs> it does seem strange that you know something isn't quite clicking there. And like I said, I don't watch Arsenal enough to really properly. Uh, you know, analyse exactly what the problems are. And in all fairness, it's not my job to anyway. So that's what Mikel and his team are there to do. But it, it does seem strange that you've had, you know, like I say, almost half a season now and just haven't been able to quite get that right um, is is worrying. And, and you kind of get to the point where you you think, does does he does he know what to do to sort of to change it and, and, and turn it around? And I think that's now the challenge. And he's, you know, let's face it, he's probably got till... If he doesn't do what what you've just said, you know, we probably by you know maybe not even the end of the year, uh, but certainly by the end of the year, if, if you know if he hasn't put together a couple of wins at least, then um, I, I, I do think that the Arsenal board are reluctant in, in a similar way that I think the Man United hierarchy is with Ole. They don't particularly want to have to make a decision, um, and given the fact there aren't many other candidates, both of those two things combined is is buying him the time. I think, but it, it will potentially get to a point where. Um, it just gets untenable because of the results, um, and they may just have to make the decision for you know for that reason alone. Um, I, he, I think he probably he needs to get the best out of the players. But go, yeah, go on, go on, Paul. I, I think he probably needs to win one of these next two: Southampton mm. and Everton. Um, we then we've got the cup game against Man City, the League Cup, and then we've got Chelsea on Boxing Day, and then we've got Brighton and West Brom in two league games immediately after. Um, Boxing Day, and I think he probably needs to take a minimum of four and probably six points in those two. If he were to win one of these next two and both of those two, he'd probably survive. If we come out of that with kind of less than those, I mean, that'd be nine. I think I said ten, but if he comes out with less than that, I think he's in big trouble. I think then his position may be untenable. Can, can we make sure that the one of the two games he needs to win this week is against Everton, please? Well, I mean, Southampton have, have been a bit of a bogey side for us in recent years. Um, I know the media is only really interested in, in portraying teams as bogey teams for Arsenal if they kick it up in the air and then all run after it. Um, but, but actually, Southampton have caused us problems in recent years and it, it won't be an easy game tomorrow. Uh, I don't know. I, the, there's something telling me we'll win tomorrow um, night, but that might just be misplaced optimism. Um, but I've got a pretty good feeling about that game. I don't know. It just feels like a bit of a get-right game for them. Um, we also have a pretty good record at Goodison Park, on, uh, we, which is where we are at the weekend. But again, I'm not sure if that counts for much because um, we've normally been going there playing much better than we are at the moment. So um, you probably can't draw too many conclusions. 
and of course Everton aren't normally as as good as they are the as they are relatively speaking at the moment as well. Um, if we kind of look at the the, the fixtures ahead, you know, we've mentioned the games tomorrow. I've just finished watching Wolves against Chelsea, and we're going to be treated to the joys of uh, Man City scoring in the first five minutes, no doubt against West Brom. Um, that seems to be it for a while. Well, well, it certainly. It looks to me as though we're getting to the point where we're going to start to have multiple fixtures on one day at the same time. Is it about time that that happened? Is it kind of we we don't need all of the football all the time? Let's just have a choice of games. I don't think there's a, a huge demand from loads of people to watch every single game. I think you know most people want to watch their team and probably some of the other you know choice you know big big club you know big six team against big six team um, if if you like. Um, and I think that's you know that's always what we've had previously, <laughs> um, and I think that's kind of what the more the the model you're talking about going back to. Um, I guess the the flip side is, and I suppose, in the and the reason we have it at the moment is, does anyone have anything else to do? <laughs> it's, uh, and so it's that's that's a tricky one. And you know, I think even though obviously we're hoping the situation's going to change with vaccines and whatever and life returning back to normal. Um, as as you know, as I sit here, as Paul and I do with London going back into tier three um, at midnight tonight or whatever, you know, we're, we're sort of one step forward, two steps back a little bit still. So I, I equally think, is it, is it, yeah, is it, is it being done still for you know essentially for for viewers to give us all to give us all something to do to be occupied with? I don't know. I think I'm I'm feeling you know as we've talked before about you know all of the football all the time, you know, a little bit of like match fatigue and you know initially the novelty was quite nice um but equally it does get to a point of like now I'm, I'm being more picky with what i watch you know when it started i would try and actually watch most of the games but i'm at a point now where i'm like i'll, I'll have a scan through the fixtures and i'll i'll try and catch a bit of a game i might have an interest in and obviously i watch the man united games but i try you know i find other things to do um or i'll or i'll have it on a second screen in the background and pop my head up if a goal goes in or something like that or if there's an incident but there is personally think there is a bit of fatigue coming in but I could see why some people are like do you know what I've got nothing else to do just give me give me the games to give me something to do in the evenings um but as as we spoke it's an interesting link to the to the conversation we had with um with Tom uh, last week Dan you know around the impact it also has on on everyone involved in you know not just in playing but actually on you know you know filming and reporting and so on there's actually quite a you know, a wide net of, of people that get impacted with, with the current structure as well. So um, there are other factors in there, of course, but, um, and, I'm, and I'm sure maybe there's, as we keep coming back to this sort of revenue factor as well, right? If there's, if there's games on individually, that probably presents better, you know, potentially better, uh, you know, rates for adverts and things like that. Whereas if they're on at the same time, maybe not. So there's, there's things like that to, to think about as well. Um, but yeah, personally, I'm I'm a lot more picky about the games that I'm watching at the moment, and I think that will probably continue as well. Um, but I'll, I'll hand over to one of you guys to jump in. All you had to say, Cam, was I don't really fancy Brighton against West Brom. Well, yeah, I mean that's yeah, those are the kind of examples, aren't they? Where everyone's like, yeah, there's you know, unless, uh, Brighton and West Brom fans will, I'm sure, be happy maybe to watch it, but um, it's not of you know, it's not the kind of game that's going to be of an interest to a to a neutral necessarily. Yeah, I I think I think it should go back, um, and obviously we are with the with the Amazon um, days both both this week with the games tomorrow night and with the. Uh, 
uh, and tonight and with the games. I think Boxing Days and Amazon as well. I think there's it? two so, on Thursday as well, Paul. I think. And there's two on Thursday this week. So we are, we are getting back to something that looks a bit more like, you know, two or three kickoff times per per game week and, and those being, and the games then being spread between those two or three. That to me still feels like the model we should we should go back to. I, I feel like, Con, that the enthusiasm for watching every single game has waned a little bit. Um and probably more than a little bit in my case, but a little bit generally, you know, with friends and, and people I speak to who maybe w- when the football first come back and you realise how much you've missed it, you will watch whatever's on. Um, I think there's a bit of overkill at the moment. And I, I think we have to get back to something that approaches a, a model where, you know, three or four of the games kick off at the same time on a Saturday and maybe a couple kick off at the same time on a Sunday and, and, and then the rest are, are shared about for TV. Um, and if you want to still have accessibility to TV, then then fine. Um, you know, you can you can make the games available through some sort of match choice system or whatever on, on Sky or or whichever broadcaster's got the rights, like like Amazon are doing. I just I don't know that we need to stick with this model of every single game almost has its own individual kickoff time. Um, that feels to me like something that worked quite well at the start of, of um, you know, the, the football restart, but maybe doesn't quite work in the longer term. What what you mean, Paul, is there's no longer this, wild, like this wholesale desire to watch Aston Villa against Sheffield United because it's the first game back. Yeah, I think I think I mean that was the first game back, wasn't it? And I think yeah, I think that's true. I, I don't feel like I have to sort of you know sit every night and and watch every Premier League game. Um, and I think there will be a lot of people in that in that scenario. And it it just feels to me as though it's another step back towards normality as well to go back to kind of having a bunch of Premier League games on a Saturday. That feels like another sort of move towards life as we all recognise it. And as as getting fans in grounds does, and as Khan's just said, obviously that rolls back now in in London because we're we're into the tier three um, territory. But I think. It, it's about trying to slowly but surely move the game back to a, a more normal position, and um, that would be a part of it. But again, we have to be cognizant of what that means in terms of income and, and uh, TV sales and all the other things that, that factor into these decisions. And of course, I mean it, it's it's pretty devastating for anywhere to be in tier three, but it's it's going to hit London quite hard, isn't it? And there's so many kind of amateur clubs and. And non-league clubs, which is just basically going to have the the season's going to be ruined for them because this ain't going to change until the end of January. Yeah, I fear that's probably right, Dan. And and with the the rules being as they are, I'm expecting a third wave in January because of the whole Christmas relaxation of the rules. Um, I know, um, I know Michael Gove is discussing that with um, the devolved leaders today. Um, quite what will change I'm not too sure probably you can't travel between Wales and Scotland and England and Wales and whatnot. I, I don't know but yeah it's it's pretty grim for for everyone in um, in tier 3 and I, I do genuinely feel bad for, for everyone because you know, that's been us for the last six months and now like we're we're okay for now and it's spread out it's just a shocking situation and it's not just because we have to have more Steve McManaman on television that it's a shocking situation. <laughs> That's just an unfortunate um, side effect of uh, 
the uh, the COVID football problems that we're having at the moment. Not just him. There's, there's plenty. I, I think we'll have to have a topic one week about punditry. But uh, yeah, there we go. With with that being said, there's only and it's not like encounter or anything. There's only sixteen days until the transfer window reopens. Uh, that's it. Not that I'm counting or anything. I'm not counting until the first of January when we can sign a centre half. Um, is there anything that you, you you gents have spotted where you think that someone particularly needs to get someone in? I mean, I'll say now Liverpool need to sign a, a centre half. Um, I thought it might be Upper Campo, but according to to Jan Agafiotoft, um he of Premier League nineteen ninety three vintage, um, it, it's not. Um, going to be happening. That will be a summer transfer, and it will probably be to a Premier League club, but not necessarily Liverpool. Um, so we we might have a look at uh, Ben White from Brighton, uh, who's a, a good footballing centre half. Who 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 do you think needs what in the, in in terms of the Premier League? I, I know Sheffield United need to sign a striker. Yeah, Sheffield United need about four players. I think. Um, I think West Brom need a centre half. Uh, I think I'd be more inclined, and I know they're not particularly in any better shakes in the league, but I'd be inclined to stand pat a bit more with what I've got if I'm Fulham. Um, I've seen signs of life from them in recent weeks. Their performances have been better, not just obviously the the result they got against Liverpool at the weekend, but I think their performances have improved on those those first few games. I think Burnley needs somebody to put the goal in uh, the ball in the goal, but you know, eternal problem with Burnley of, of not getting money in. Uh, have not been able to spend money, sorry, to get players in. Um, I think when you look at the upper half of the league, uh, Spurs might be one where if there's a player who can just come in and add, particularly I'm thinking in midfield where I still feel like they're missing a real top draw player in there. Um, even though the, the boy they signed from Leon sort of a year ago has, has played much better this season. Um, I, I think they may look at one more. Uh, it would be quite Mourinho-like, I think, to, to want to add one in, in January. Um, and obviously, they're in the title race, so they can they can justify that. They might as well just go for look, it, because they're never going to have a better chance, arguably. Well, exactly. And I think you look around at the rest of them, and you know Leicester and, and Southampton, they're not going to spend big money. They'll stick to their model. They won't panic. They're in good positions. They will stick to their long-term plan. Um, Chelsea actually need to not buy anybody. They, they spent so much money in the summer and they, they just need that team to try and bed in. Um, the other one, I, I think, who could be tempted to go for, go for something else is Everton because I think they're very, very reliant on Calvert-Lewin for goals. Um, and I don't know what the money situation is or whether there's going to be anything available to Carlo Ancelotti, but I, I think, you know, their, their depth behind him is frighteningly bad. And I think uh, if he were to pick up an injury and we play lots of games around Christmas time, as everyone knows, I, th- I think Everton could be in trouble if he were to if he were to get uh, any sort of knock. Um, they kept him out for any, any length of time. So I think there's a few there who will probably look at something. I don't expect it to be a really busy January window. It hasn't been the last few years. Um, and I think... You know, you increasingly get the sense that clubs see making big moves in January as a bit of a panic, um, and it tends to be the ones down the bottom of the league who start to start to panic the earliest. 
Yeah, I think I think that's good good summary, Paul. And yeah, I definitely agree that um, I don't see lots happening. Um, I think it sounds like the bigger clubs now just use January almost to sort of lay down the roots for the deals they want to strike in the summer, um, rather than actually sort of you know exchanging players or signing anything now. So that that seems to be the case. So I don't think many of the big clubs will be doing anything drastic. Um, I suspect we might just see a few you know, quieter deals, if you like, where, you know, clubs just bolster with additional, uh, you know, if, if they just need some cover. And yeah, like I say, maybe some of the uh, the clubs down the bottom end have more of a need to uh, to perhaps uh, do do that because of the risk of, of relegation. Um, but yeah, I think, as you've said, quite a few teams have either spent a lot already or sort of have broadly the right kind of mix or they're overperforming. So, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, so yeah, I think it will be. I think it will be very quiet. Um, and not not expecting anything uh, anything too drastic, really. But you know, who knows? Football football can surprise us. But uh, yeah, not expecting loads to be happening. I'm only expecting Liverpool to sign a centre half because we have we've effectively lost our first our our first choice centre halves in in. Matip, the only thing you could depend on him to do is be injured, which is a real shame because when he plays, he's excellent. And then we've got Fabinho, who's probably been our best centre half this season. He's not even a centre half. You know, like it's something that we 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 can't kind of scrimp on that. We need to to get that sorted because with all all the, the the best will in the world, Matt Phillips, I don't want to be depending on him in April and May when the the league's on the line. Yeah, I think there's an argument for Liverpool to bring one in. I mean, they they only have three anyway, don't they? Really, um, in in those three that you've mentioned, and obviously Fabinho playing there as a fourth. So they went into the season a little bit light, probably in that position. And I know there's the argument that well, if you've got four centre halves and you you top two stay fit, how much does the fourth guy actually play? But as you know, as it always turns out, once you'd think, well that's okay, we'll go in with three, inevitably that's the year when everybody gets injured. Um it, and you kinda need the fourth guy. It, it comes to something when I wish when I ideally wish we hadn't sold Dayan Lovren. Yeah, well I mean <laughs> that is something. Well yeah that that's immortalised in in audio now for everyone to hear me say, not something that you ever thought you'd hear me say, ever. I wish we'd have kept all the Lovren. <laughs> um, moving swiftly on from that, please. Um, any other business? I, I noticed crew were flying again, Paul. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good um, really good performance so far. And uh, this season, I think everyone expected we'd go down. I certainly expected we'd go down and, and we're kind of holding pattern. Unless something's changed in the last five minutes, we're still... Tunnel up at home to uh, to Plymouth as well. So really good home form, and I think when you're a newly promoted club into any division, it's really important that you're good at home. Um, though that first year up, and and Crew have have done well at home this year, and it's it's got them sort of safely mid table in League One, not even not a million miles away from thinking about a uh, a little run at the playoffs in the second half of the season if they can if they can keep the form going and and there's just there's a there's a kid uh who plays sort of wide or, or in midfield for us um named Tom Lowry who's uh who's a talented little player i mean little being the operative words because he's he's only he's only very very short for a professional footballer but he's he's a really talented kid and he's one I think could come off the crew production line and, and end up playing at a higher level than League One. Um, good little footballer. And a higher punditry level than Robbie Savage. 
<laughs> well, Robbie Savage was a good player for Crew as well. I am uh, not a bad word said against him. Anything from you, Cam? Uh, nothing from me, other than to say your prediction so far hasn't come true, Dan. That West Brom have held out so far twenty minutes against well, City and well, counting. So, not, normally with Man City, what what they do is they score early, and then you know they're just going to like win two nil or three nil, and it's pointless watching the game. But um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got it on here. You know, I'm, I, you know me, can't I? Always do my research, and I'm, <laughs> I, I watch all of the football all the time. Um, and yeah, the, someone's got to Dan. Well, well, that's, that's <laughs> me and Paul aren't clearly. So. <laughs> I, I, I think so, someone on this podcast needs to actually watch some football. <laughs> I, I think I'm, I'm with you. We're in. Um, I, I'm ready to have a choice of games tomorrow. Like getting the fixtures up tomorrow. I mean, it's a bit of a shame, really. I actually, I, I would would enjoy watching Arsenal against Southampton and at the same time Leeds against Newcastle because Leeds are always good to watch. And Leicester yeah. against Everton, they're the three games. Now you, that, that's a bit of unfortunate. You lose something there because they are three games that I wouldn't mind watching. However, I'm probably—I don't know which one I'll choose. I'll, I'll probably watch the Leicester game in in the hope that Everton will lose. But um, I, I, it, what, just while we're on the subject of predictions, and I, I'm a little reticent to say before tomorrow night, but I think somebody on this podcast, a very, very intelligent football observer, predicted at the start of the season that Southampton were going to have a really good year. Yes, you did, um, and, and they are doing. Uh, I, I watched them dismantle Sheffield again. I watched it. I, I watched them dismantle Sheffield United on. Um, oh, it was you, was it? No, it was you, Paul. You, you said they would, you said they would have a good season, but I, I watched. No, I, I meant I meant you were the one viewer of Southampton versus Sheffield United. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it will. It, to be fair to Sheffield United fans, I'm sure they wouldn't have wanted to watch it. Um, that should have been one nil long before it was. Um, yeah. It, um, I think I think Southampton couldn't come under any other other businesses. They're playing really well. They're a really attractive team. And when you were talking about potential Arsenal managers, Paul, I meant, I meant to say as well, um, maybe Hassan Hussle will be hovering yeah, we, over the apply we, button. If we're going to appoint someone from the Premier League, we could we could do worse than him. Or, if there's a vacancy, obviously at the moment there's not a vacancy. Not not at the moment. No, uh, I mean, I, I I look at Mikel Arteta and you know I I, I still. He's still, put it this way, he's not about to stand on the touchline in injury time when losing and tell his team to keep breathing. No. We've not hit Kevin Keegan levels of, oh, I don't know what what to do here. What do you think, Faz? We're not at them <laughs> levels, yeah. Right, gents, it's been a, a bit of a, a short one. We'll have to talk over our our festive schedule because um, I know, I know um, well, we, we don't know whether the rules are going to change or not. Um, so we'll we'll have to see on that, but I'm sure you'll be all heading, um, flocking to your families for your festive feasts. Um, we will be having um, another guest from, uh, without wanting this to turn into the uh, the University of Central Lancashire alumni podcast. Uh, we're going to be getting Mark Higginson, who also works at BBC Sport, on to join us. Uh, Mark does does football as well, but he does a lot of um, cricket live commentary so I, I will be able to make my normal Shane Watson joke about reviewing f- in, in futility and um, I might get a laugh out of Mark um, Gents it's been a pleasure as always um, thank you for listening to me talk about, about Gerard earlier because as you know someone I was very fond of and someone I always went in to bat for even when it was patently obvious that I shouldn't have been doing so and we'll be back next week um, 
and we, we look forward to that. So thank you very much for your time. If you've not had a chance to listen to um, the interview we did with Tom Rostens, um of Live Text Fame, you really should go and listen to that because that was a lot of fun. Uh, and you can catch the Big Football Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, CastBox and Podbean. Thank you very much for your time and we'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.